following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We are doing snapshots of Jesus going into Christmas Eve for, uh, I think it'll be four Sundays, and last Sunday was the first one. We're just going to talk about some times in Jesus' life, some things he did or some things he said as we prepare to celebrate his arrival in the world. So I'm going to be pulling from John 12 this week. We're not going to get there for a little bit. We need to do a little bit of introduction. But it's going to be a little bit of a follow-up to the last point last week, which was we experience resurrection after we experience crucifixion. Not in the same way Jesus did, obviously. But the idea is that life follows death. And while Jesus set this pattern physically for us to show that he has the power over death, there's there's a rhythm to our lives in which we are called to die in certain ways so that we can come back to life. And that's what I want to talk about a bit more this morning. So there was a book that came out a number of years ago called Eat, Pray, Love. There's also a movie made of this written by a lady named Liz Gilbert. If you've not heard of the book, here's a brief synopsis. Liz Gilbert thought she had everything she wanted in life, a home, a husband, and a successful career. Now newly divorced and facing a turning point, she finds that she is confused about what is important to her. Daring to step out of her comfort zone, Liz embarks on a quest of self-discovery that takes her to Italy, India, and Bali. So that was 2006. But this wasn't the first time that Liz Gilbert had discovered something very important about herself. In 2015, she wrote an article for the New York Times called Confessions of a Seduction Addict. And in it, she describes some events from her life from before the time that she wrote the book. And this is going to take a little bit to go through a section of this article here, but I think we need it to kind of set the background for who Liz Gilbert was. It started with the boy I met at summer camp and ended with the man for whom I left my first husband. In between, I careened from one intimate entanglement to the next, dozens of them, without so much as a day off between romances. You might have called me a serial monogamist, except that I was never exactly monogamous. Relationships overlapped, and those overlaps were always marked by exhausting theatricality, sobbing arguments, shaming confrontations, broken hearts. Still, I kept doing it. I couldn't not do it. If the man was already involved in a committed relationship, I knew that I didn't need to be prettier or better than his existing girlfriend. I just needed to be different. Soon enough, and sure enough, I might begin to see that man's gaze toward me change from indifference to friendship to open desire. That's what I was after. The telekinesis-like sensation of steadily dragging somebody's fullest attention toward me and only me. My guilt about the other woman was no match for the intoxicating knowledge that somewhere on the other side of town, somebody couldn't sleep that night because he was thinking about me. If he needed to sneak out of his house after midnight in order to call, better still. That was power, but it was also affirmation. I was someone's irresistible treasure. I loved that sensation, and I needed it, not sometimes, not even often, but always. In my mid-twenties, I married, but not even matrimony slowed me down. Predictably, I grew restless and lonely. Soon enough, I seduced someone new. The marriage collapsed, but it was worse than just that. Before my divorce agreement was even signed, I was already breaking up with the guy I had broken up my marriage for. If you asked me what I was up to, I might have claimed that I was a helpless romantic, and how can you judge that? If really cornered, 
I might have argued that I was a revolutionary feminist taking brazen agency over my own sexuality. For the first time, I forced myself to admit that I had a problem, indeed, that I was a problem. Tinkering with other people's most vulnerable emotions didn't make me a romantic, it just made me a swindler. Lying and cheating didn't make me brazen, it just made me a needy coward. Stealing other women's boyfriends didn't make me a revolutionary feminist, it just made me a menace. I hated that it took me almost 20 years to realize this. There are 60-year-old kids who know better than to behave this way. It felt shameful, but once I got it, I really got it. There's no way to stop a destructive behavior except to stop. So then in the article, she tells a story about a new man that she was really attracted to, but she resisted. She had learned this lesson. She had stopped her pattern of destructive behavior. And as far as anyone can tell, when the article ends, the article ends well. She's learned something important about life that has changed her, and it's not just been for her good, but for the good of people around her. Well, then, after the events in this article, she travels on this quest for self-discovery that she chronicles in Eat, Pray, Love, and which culminates in her marrying someone new. And then one year after that, this appeared in the New York Times. Miss Gilbert, speaking directly to her readers in a Facebook post, said that after 12 years, she was separating from Jose Nunez, the Brazilian importer whom she met during her travels and later married and who was a central character in the book. In April, Miss Gilbert said that she missed travel. I have never been to Japan, Iceland, South Africa, and other places that it would be a pity to come to this earth and miss. So it strikes me that there actually wasn't a happy ending to this story. And that while she was on this journey of self-discovery and she discovered things about herself, I'm not sure what, how, how it actually in the end improved her life. Because it turns out discovery is not enough. I mean, we could do this journey of self-discovery where we look at our lives and we take inventory and before God we go, okay, now I see who I am. We've discovered that. But the act of discovery isn't enough. It's what we do with the thing that we discover that makes a difference. So she apparently returned to this restlessness that she described in that article. That whatever it was she had discovered that had caused her to move on to some new place, whatever this place was, it wasn't a place that eased that restlessness. Uh, some people would call this an existential void, which simply means that there was something about her existence that there was this bottomless sense of, I don't have enough, it's not good enough, I'm missing something, there's something else out there. Restlessness is my best term for it. And this will manifest in a lot of ways, but I think the bottom line is she's looking to be filled with things that can't possibly fill her in the ways that she desires. And the sad thing is that this, this story has actually influenced a lot of fans who kind of see the chronicle of her life as this exciting thing. Uh, the Daily Mail noted that Eat, Pray, Love struck a chord with an entire generation of women who, Gilbert feels, didn't get the memo that they're in charge of their own life. So this is where I note that being in charge of our own life might not always be the blessing that we think it is. Sometimes the worst thing that could happen to us is that we are in charge of our own lives. And as much as she uses the language of self-empowerment and all these types of things, I'm not actually convinced as I read her story that she was as in control of her life as she thought she was. 
And, and I'm beginning to think more and more that being in charge of our lives simply means we get to choose who we will serve. This is the biblical idea, actually. The Bible is clear, you serve somebody. We are all servants or slaves in some fashion. It's inescapable. Even Bob Dylan understood this. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. Going to have to serve some. I was expecting some of you to sing there with me at the end, but that's okay. Be a socialite with a long string of pearls. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Eichenroth, ladies and gentlemen, with the spoken word rendition for the morning. So we all give our lives to something that we believe will meet our deepest longings, that will bring us life, that will fulfill us. And these things, I think there's a pattern. First they intrigue us, then they begin to mold us, and then they lead us somewhere, and then they begin to define us. And even though this is clear in Scripture, we all serve something or someone. You don't have to be a Christian to serve this or to see this. There was a novelist named David Foster Wallace who was not a Christian, but he noted the following in a graduation speech. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. I think his list is too broad. I think anything other than Jesus, but uh, let's just go with what he has to say. If you worship money and things, if they are what where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough and you'll never feel you have enough. And it's the truth. It's worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, and parables. It's a skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. And he finished his speech by saying, it's about making it to 30 or maybe 50 without wanting to shoot yourself in the head. And he didn't make it to 50. Four years after that speech, he committed suicide. Because he, he identified the problem quite clearly, but he didn't find the solution. Uh, I'm reminded of something C.S. Lewis once wrote. Thomas, or Thomas More said, if you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will in the end make no difference what you've chosen instead. Will it really make no difference if it was women or men or patriotism, cocaine or art, whiskey or a seat in the cabinet, money or science? Well, surely no difference that matters. We shall have all missed the end for which ye are formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies. Does it matter to a man dying in the desert by which choice of route he missed the only well? So yeah, everybody worships. And we all worship something that will either leave us unsatisfied, but Isaiah calls empty wells. It will either leave us unsatisfied and always restless and always empty and always wanting more, or we seek this well that never runs dry, as the Bible describes Jesus. It, and we begin to experience hope, joy, satisfaction, meaningfulness in life, where God meets us in the midst of our longing and in the midst of our desires. 
So now my snapshot of Jesus. Like I said, this is from John 12. Here's the context. He had just raised Lazarus. So the buzz is, look at this man who can take people from physical death into physical life. Jesus uses that opportunity to begin a spiritual teaching where he talks about a different kind of journey from death to life. And I'm condensing a lot from John 12 into one paragraph so it all fit on one slide. I tell you the truth, says Jesus. Unless a grain of wheat is planted in the ground and dies, it remains a solitary seed. But when it's planted, it produces in death a great harvest. The one who loves this life will lose it. The one who despises it in this world will have life for any more, forevermore. Anyone who serves me must follow my path. Anyone who serves me will want to be where I am and will be honored by the Father. And we see this imagery used throughout the Bible, this idea that our lives are like this seed. We have to die in some sense to come back to life. And in this new life we have, there's a harvest and it's not just meant to benefit us, but it will benefit the world and it will point toward Christ. So the reality is that everybody dies to something so that they can live for something else. We all lay down our lives. So some of you get up at really inappropriate early hours in the morning to go exercise. Okay, you are dying to sleep to go to exercise because you've counted the cost and you've recognized, I need to give this thing up so that I can get this thing because this thing will bring me life. Um, some of us have to die to KFC and live to salad. Uh, we can talk about that more in Message Plus. Re okay, I'm going to keep going. But we do that because we recognize there are certain paths that take us toward life and certain paths that don't, and it requires sacrifice. We have to, in some sense, die to this desire for the delicious goldenness of Kentucky Fried Chicken and live toward lettuce. And I never wanted to say that in a sentence. Anytime you work hard for something, you're dying to something because you want something else. You're always prioritizing, this is the thing that is important to me, and therefore I will put aside these things that aren't important to me. Anytime you enter into true community, you're going to die to um, hiding yourself. You're going to have to die to aloofness. You, you have to die to being able to control everything. If you really want to enter into relational community with other people and in God's church, you're going to have to die to some things. We know that this is how it works. We all do this in some form in our life. We all die to something so we can live for something else. So when Jesus says you have to die so that you can live, it's probably would have made sense to a lot of people. But Jesus takes it further and he says, let, let me be clear, you have to die to yourself so that you can live for Christ. This isn't where I simply get to choose as a follower of Jesus what I will die to and what I will live to. Jesus sets the parameters for me. And the primary thing that I have to die to are my fleshly or sinful desires. I have to die to that. And what I live for is what Christ desires for me. And this dying of self isn't just a way of bringing life to me. It's how 
other people get life as well. So to go back to that quote from John 12, there's a bountiful harvest. It goes beyond just my life. So everybody worships. When we worship, I would argue that every time we worship, somebody is sacrificed. And it's either going to be us or it's going to be somebody else. And let me give you some examples. If I worship my comfort, I will sacrifice my wife and kids. Because at the end of the day, I get home and I say, stop bothering me. We'll talk when I'm good and ready. We will play games on my terms. I, I need you to adjust your hopes and dreams and priorities for me. So if I worship my comfort, I will sacrifice the people around me so that I can achieve my comfort. I'll sacrifice my friends. If all I'm interested in is my comfort, uh, you upset or hurt me, you're the problem, I need a better class of friends, I will move on. I will sacrifice my friends if I worship my comfort. And I will remain dead in my selfishness and my sin. I'll drag down people around me. And the harvest that that brings has a ripple effect throughout not just my family but my community. If I worship my reputation, uh, I'll sacrifice any of you who don't make me look good. You think I'm wrong? You're an idiot. Uh, you don't like how I pastor? You have a heart issue. You're winning an argument with me? I will humiliate you so I win the argument. And I will beat that argument to death because I can't be wrong. If I worship my reputation, I will sacrifice you if you get in the way of this reputation. And when I do that, I'll remain dead in my sins. I'll remain dead in my selfishness. And I'll drag down people around me. So if I worship money, I'll choose work over time with people, and I'll choose relationships over time with, or I'm sorry, over relationships, and I'll choose profit over people. In other words, if I worship money, I will sacrifice people in my pursuit of money. It's inevitable if money is that important in my life. If I worship my health, I'll make everything take second place to my health, and that will include anybody else's schedules, anybody else's priorities. If I worship sex, all that will matter is my fulfillment, my happiness, and I'll sacrifice the dignity of people around me. I'll manipulate them, I'll pressure them, I'll use them, I will dishonor them. I will sacrifice them for the sake of this thing that I'm worshiping. So, if you want to know what you actually worship, ask yourself, who in life are you sacrificing and why? Before I go on, I want us to think about that just a little bit. When you go home after church today, who will be sacrificed for the rest of the day? Will it be those around you or will it be you for them? So what do we do if we're caught in this trap? That seems really discouraging if I just leave it there. Because honestly, and we'll get to this in a second, the Bible is clear, we have to sacrifice ourselves every day because this is an ongoing struggle. Right? So if I stop right there, it simply seems to highlight the many ways in which we make others pay the cost for the things that we value. But the Bible has more to say than that. What do we do if we're caught in this trap? So the Bible talks about this idea of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, 
We are the ones who put ourselves on the altar, and the Bible calls this holy, acceptable to God. Like, yeah, that's the way God has a mind for us to live. I'm going to read now from Romans chapter 12 about this process of dying to ourselves. In the same way that you gave your bodily members away as slaves to corrupt and lawless living, and you found yourselves deeper in your unruly lives, now devote your members as slaves to righteousness and reconciled lives so that you will find yourselves deeper in holy living. In the days when you lived as slaves to sin, you had no obligation to do the right thing. In that regard, in a sense, you were free. But what do you have to show from your former lives besides shame? The outcome of that life is death, guaranteed. But now that you have been emancipated from the death grip of sin and you are God's slave, you have a different sort of life. You have a growing holiness. And the outcome of that life is eternal life. The payoff for a life of sin is death, but God is offering us a free gift, eternal life through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, the liberating king. So how do we solve this, this dilemma? It begins with a commitment to Jesus. We acknowledge who Jesus is. We surrender our lives. In other words, we purposely say, Lord, I am ready to give my life to you and live in the way to which you have called me. This is the biblical idea of dying. It doesn't mean we have to physically hurt ourselves. It doesn't mean that we get up on a cross like Jesus did. This is a change of mind, a change of heart. This is a purposeful way in which we approach life day after day. We say, okay, Lord, with your help, I will die to myself so that I can follow you and so that those around me can live. And this means we have to relearn where we place our focus. As a day-to-day practice, we've talked about spiritual disciplines a number of times here in church over the last year. I wonder what it looks like for us to have this rhythm of our lives where we are daily in some sense reminding ourselves what it looks like moment after moment as an act of worship to God to surrender ourselves to his rule and to his way, and to over and over again sacrifice ourselves, die so that others can live. Uh, I'll go back to Lewis again, the always quotable Lewis. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours because it is his, will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself, you'll find your real self. Lose your life, you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you'll have eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I remember thinking as a young man, 
there was particular people around me I really wanted to be like. I admired them. Uh, for one, they were quiet, <laughs> uh, like thoughtfully quiet. And those of you who know me know that it continues to be a challenge for me. But I really admired people who just had this quiet, calm presence. I admired people who had this depth of wisdom to pull from. Like you'd ask them a question and they had something good to offer about it. Not like they were the smartest person in the room on everything, but they were just, they were wise. They had good relationships. They were careful with people. It was clear that they loved God and this love of God ordered their lives. And I, I saw this and it really impacted my life. And there were certain people that, have you ever been around those who just, you're in their presence and you feel like, oh, this is like a hot spot for God, kind of. This is, this is good stuff. I just like to be around them. And I saw people like that and I so desperately wanted to be like that. And it took me a long time. I think it's safe to say it is still ongoing. To realize that if I really want to be like that, I have to die. Because for the longest time, why do I keep referring to this in the past tense? It remains a challenge that I see someone else that I deeply admire. It's clear God is at work in them and there's spiritual maturity and there's just this longing to be near them and soak up their lives and I'll think about what it must be like to be like that and then I just go away and keep being whoever I was before. But it doesn't work that way. That kind of maturity doesn't come from wishful thinking. That kind of maturity comes from surrender. It comes from this daily habit of being willing to die. If I want to live, I have to be crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. If I want the power of the resurrection, I have to participate in the fellowship of his suffering, Philippians 3.10. So, if I want to be wise, and if we think of wisdom as rightly applied knowledge, and we could even say the divinely inspired application of knowledge, if I want to be wise, I have to prioritize certain things in my life that will lead me toward wisdom. Playing Bloons Monkey City will not lead me toward wisdom, though there's at least an hour or two a week where I'm okay with that. I have to study certain things. I need to read the scripture. I need to know God's word. I have to spend the time necessary to let it soak into me. I need to read what other Christians are saying about God's word. I need to hear what other Christians are saying about how to live life well. I need to spend time with people where instead of me talking about myself to them, I just, I tap their heart and mind and I say, okay, I know that you are this kind of person. I need to learn from you. I have questions. There is a habit and a rhythm to my life if I want to be wise that requires me to die to certain things that might be fun in the moment and might not even be necessarily bad things. But I, I won't stumble into wisdom. I won't stumble into wisdom. I won't wish my way into wisdom. And I'm going to get later to the broader principles about how important prayer is in this process as well. 
But do you understand what I mean? If I want to be a wise person, I'm going to have to order my life in such a way that I read what wise people say and I hang out with wise people and I learn from wise people and I let all these things soak in and that means some other things are going to have to go. I have to die to those things so that I can live in this way. If I want to be self-controlled, I have to practice self-control. I'm going to have to die to some things. I'm going to have to die to venting my anger when I want to. I'm going to have to die to saying the first words that come into my mind. I'm going to have to die to emotional outburst. There's a lot of things I'm going to have to die to if I want to live. I've mentioned this before, but basketball was always my Achilles heel for my temper, at least as I got older. When I was younger, everything was my Achilles heel for my temper. As I got older, it tended to center more in basketball. I would make a fool of myself on the basketball court by the things I would say to other players. It was embarrassing. And I quit playing for a while because I thought, this is just foolish. Why do I keep putting myself in this situation? And that might have been the right thing to do for a time. But there also came a point where I felt like God was urging me, Anthony, you can't avoid those situations. You need to learn how to go in there and be a man of integrity. So I started playing basketball again, which was a lot of fun. Um, It's not like that was a chore. But I started playing basketball again, but I knew this time when I did it, this was God's tool for refining me. And so basketball was an opportunity to pray that God refine something in me in situations that I previously handled poorly. Okay, now let's see what it looks like with the power of God. And you know what the funny thing is? I don't really play basketball anymore because everything is falling apart and hurts. Um, but when I, a couple years ago when I was still playing regularly, I actually had people say to me, I really enjoy playing basketball with you because you're always always joking and you lighten the mood and like we're in open gym and things are starting to get tense and you manage to calm things down. And I'm like, what? How did that happen? I was that guy. But that that was a process of of years of, of learning what it looked like to die to these things in myself so that I could live, and it turned out it had a bountiful harvest. It spread out in a very practical sense. If I want to overcome anger, I have to address my anger and issues fueling my anger. I'm going to have to die to something. Right? So for me, it was um, counseling. Um, that was in Bible college. I don't think I had counseling in high school, but I had counseling in Bible college about this. It's honest discussions with my wife, um, with my friends, with people around me about what is triggering you, Anthony? What is going on? Why, is, why are these things making you so angry? It was self-analysis, which I generally hate, but the fruit of that is usually pretty good. Um, I had to do my own journey of discovery, but not simply to discover what do I do with what I have discovered? How do I surrender the things that I'm discovering? It was a lot of prayer. We're going to get to that more in a little bit. Going, dear God, I am uncontrollable without your help. If I want to move from lustful thoughts to pure thoughts, uh, I've got to change habits and focus. Uh, I, I have got to be praying regularly, Lord, clean my mind. Create in me a new heart. I have to now be 
reading material about a healthy view of sexuality and a healthy view of people. I have to not be filling myself with things that are going to take me in the wrong direction, but filling myself with the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God's world. And that's going to mean dying to temptations, dying to desires that used to control me. Because wishful thinking won't change us. Wishful thinking won't bring us to life. So here I think are some practical things some scriptural things about what it looks like to die to self so that we can live. Number, and I, I preface all of this, by the way. The foundational things that happen is because Jesus, because Jesus died for us and rose for us. Our sins can be forgiven. And the power of our sins can be broken in our life. God offers forgiveness. He offers his spirit and his word and his people. There is a supernatural work that takes place in us with Christ that cannot happen outside of Christ. It's a foundational thing, all right? But then after that, this I die daily, as Paul says, it's praying. This is prayers of surrender, prayers for supernatural help. I think... One of the very important things about prayer, especially prayers of surrender, is that we are reminding ourselves that we desperately need God's help. So if, if anger is an issue for you, to get up in the morning and just say, oh, dear God, I cannot control my anger on my own. I need your help today. Just to remind yourself, this is not a battle that you're alone in. This is a battle that God is fighting for you. It orients us if we keep that pattern of prayer. It's reading and studying biblical truth. I can't stress this enough. I've said before that one of the blessings of having a pastor as a job is that I have to engage deeply with Scripture. Honestly, if it wasn't my job, I think I would have a tendency not to. So I have to ask you to do something that I know I wouldn't have a tendency to do, I think, on my own, and that is deeply engage Scripture. It's, it's not enough to come here on a Sunday. I can't possibly do justice to the Word of God in 30 to 40 minutes once a week. There has to be a daily rhythm of your life where you are absorbing the Word of God. I also encourage, by the way, that you also uh, read commentaries, that you hear what other Christians are saying. They, too, are inspired by the Holy Spirit to understand what the Bible is communicating. Third, I encourage you to seek Christian counsel, and I mean this both casually and professionally. If there are areas of your life that, that you are just really struggling with, Christian counselors are a great idea they love Jesus, and they are trained how to help us um, go in this journey. Let's call it again a journey of self-discovery, but not simply to stop there, but to go, oh, now I see more clearly what it is I need to give to Jesus. Now I see more clearly what has formed me and what it looks like to apply healing to this. And then by casually, I simply mean you need to be talking with friends, at least one or two people in your life that you can deeply share with about the things in your life that you're having trouble dying to. Really, that's also choosing accountability and then putting it into practice. See, the dilemma with presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice is that living sacrifices can crawl off the altar. 
right? So to go back to a little bit earlier in the sermon, if we don't climb up ourselves, what we will tend to do is put other people up and go, I'd like you to sacrifice something for me. Um, that's what Jesus did. That's not what others, that's not what we demand of others. What we look at in our life is go, okay, what does it look like for me to get up on this altar, to lay down my life in the service of Jesus, and as I do that, it will be in the service of others. Am I coming up here instead of demanding that others get up here for me? And now, I'm a living sacrifice, and now what does it look like to make sure I'm staying in this position of sacrifice? So this is the pattern. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we see the foundation of the promise of salvation. We also see that the deepest and most profound love happens when one dies so that others can live. Jesus is the unique and ultimate example of what this looks like. What we're talking about is how we pass this gift on to others. This establishes the pattern that God uses to bring us from life in the midst of our death, first spiritually and ultimately physically. Back to last week, there's no resurrection without crucifixion. Our lives then become characterized by dying to self or self-sacrifice rather than living for self, which I would call self-indulgence. And this isn't just a vague practice. This isn't just an idea that we hold in our heads. It is a purposeful commitment to living for Jesus by living like Jesus to point others toward Jesus. It's in that process that the seed of our life multiplies. Once again, this isn't just for us, though it will have a profound impact on us. This is also uh, because I love Jesus uh, and I sacrificed my life, I also learned from Jesus what it means to really love others. And now because I also love others, I'm sacrificing my life. I want to see what it looks like to model what Jesus did and die so that those around me can live. So my, my ideal would be when I go home today from church, the question in the front of my mind is, how do I die so that Sheila can live? How do I die so that Vincent can live? And it doesn't mean, by the way, that um, others around me, uh, okay, how do I say this? The ideal of the community of the church is that we're all committed to this. We're all committed to this. Because I'm not a perfect guy, and I'm not a guy with limitless strength, right? There are times where other people around me, they willingly sacrifice something about themselves to help fill me up in moments of need. I don't mean to make us kind of arrogant and aloof. I'm just saying that as I think through the course of my life, when we leave, what does it look like for me to die so that Sheila can live? You have to ask that question too. See, why do I want to say that? I feel like I just learned something about myself there. <laughs> Journey of self-discovery in front of an audience. What does it look like for me to die so that Vincent can live? And then Monday, what does it look like for me to die so that Sheila can live? What does it look like for me to die so that Vincent can live on Monday? And then there's Tuesday. What does it look like for me to die so Sheila can live Tuesday? What does it look like for me to die so Vincent can live Tuesday? 
Then there's Wednesday. Okay, but as I think about this, actually, out loud, my most meaningful moments in life, as I look back on my life, my most meaningful moments, I mean, there are deeply meaningful moments where other people have died so that I can live. Like when I would struggle with grief and depression and those kinds of things, people around me died to help bring me life. I'm deeply grateful for that. When I think of choices I made, my deeply meaningful moments aren't moments where I demanded something of others. When I look back on my life, my meaningful moments are those times where I died so that others could live. Like that, that was, man, that felt like life. You don't wake up the next morning going, well, I wasted that evening. Um, you wake up the next going, oh, that was, that was really good. That was good. I think it's something that, that, that God intends for it to kind of build its own momentum as we go through. So even as I talk about this, like, what does it look like Thursday, Friday, Saturday for me to die so that Sheila and Vincent can live? Um, there's something compelling about that. Now I have a principle to order my life around. Now I have a goal every day. I don't have to come home from work and go, what am I going to do now? Watch basketball, play Bloons Monkey Cities again? Um, what, am I going to have to clean? What does it, what's it look like? What if instead of all those things, when I come home, my thought is, oh, okay, when I get home tonight, I got to figure out what it looks like for me to die so Sheila can live and for me to die so Vincent can live. That, that gives a structure and a purpose and a thickness to my life that seems really compelling. And now I have to throw this out there, and I, I don't mean for this to be a deflection, but imagine now what happens if our whole family is asking that. What if Sheila and Vincent and I are all coming home at night and going, I wonder what it looks like for me to die so that they can live. Well, that sounds really good. That, that sounds maybe like what Jesus has in mind. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it look like here at church if we're showing up every Sunday and during the week when we're meeting people and we have opportunities to help? I don't mean to isolate it to a Sunday. What does it mean at the church as we're walking here on a Sunday, we're like, ooh, I got a couple hours here where I can die so that someone else in church can live. Uh, and what happens if we all come to church like that? I, I don't know. That sounds really beautiful to me. That sounds really exciting. We're here every morning with a purpose. Ooh, I'm going to have an opportunity to die so someone else can live. Um, but it, it, I don't know. I'm going to babble now. I'm... I'm off my notes, and I'm excited about this idea, and I'm thinking out loud, and it's 1101, so this seems like a good opportunity to say, uh, if you want to talk about this more, let's go to Message Plus. I, I just feel like there's something about this image of how God plans to build the community of his church, and not just for our sake, but as this salt and light and witness to the world of what it looks like when God gets a hold of people and moves in and really changes how we think about life. What it looks like for the love that God has passed to us to be passed on to others. I, that's church. That's church. Uh, Lord, I am grateful so much for Jesus and what he did for us, that he died and came back to life so that we could live. To prove to us that he has the power to take us in the midst of our death and bring us life. 
Oh, that's exciting. That's a powerful promise. Lord, I pray for all of us this morning who feel like we're caught in these places of death, whatever that looks like. I pray that we catch a vision for what this life looks like that you offer us. I pray that you build in us this eagerness to pass on what's been given to us, this excitement that we have the opportunity to bring life to others. Yes, we'll have to die. Yes, it will be hard. Yes, it will be messy. I don't mean to gloss over that part, Lord. But, but it's good. And it gives us a foretaste of heaven. I'm convinced it gives us a foretaste of heaven. May we be the kind of people, Lord, who long for that and who surrender ourselves to you, motivated by love, motivated as a response of worship to you, and then moved by that to spread your love and your goodness to the world. Pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.